Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Life After GDPR podcast, where we discuss digital marketing in a post-GDPR world. In today's episode, I get to interview Paul Bannister. He's one of those real must-follow people on Twitter, where he often shares quite contrary uh, statements, uh, but all, always based with uh, upon his experience. So I was really happy that he wanted to join the show. So Paul's background is in the publisher side of things. And Paul's been working in that area for a long time. And he has a lot of experience uh, from that side of the business. So that made it a really interesting conversation. Yeah, it's fun to hear Paul's angle on what is going on currently, what the impact of privacy regulations and privacy preserving techniques by browsers are, and how these might actually impact smaller businesses more often than the big conglomerates. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting episode. I really enjoyed interviewing Paul. There are some issues with the recordings on my end, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully we can edit that all out, but especially in the video recording, you might have some blackouts sometime. Sorry for that, won't happen again. Now, hopefully you can enjoy this episode with Paul Bannister. Paul Bannister, welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rick. Great to be here. I have been following you for a while on Twitter, and I think this is one of the reasons why, although a lot of people are hating on Twitter, I, I really love Twitter for finding people that you've never met and then really uh, getting a lot of content from them. And you are, you are one of those people. I have no clue when I started following you, but it was probably in a discussion around one of the topics that we're going to talk about today. Uh, you're very outspoken and you usually back up your tweets with, you know, some form of uh, insight that, yeah, that always triggered me. But before we dive into into those topics, could you introduce yourself to the people listening uh, to this podcast? Sure, absolutely. I pr appreciate the, that that introduction, and I I also like Twitter, and I do agree with you that I find that it's a good place to to find people, and and I think there's a lot of people with good with good insight. Um, you have to, you, but to your point, you have to know who to follow. I'm the chief strategy officer of Cafe Media. And what our company does is we represent the advertising of close to 4,000 websites, typically kind of mid-size that couldn't easily do it themselves. I mean, you know, we'll talk about this and I think anybody probably listened to your podcast knows, but advertising in 2022 is complicated and not obvious and has a lot of different components to it, technical and relationship-based and, and, and everything else that, that that are challenging. And for publishers, you know, if you're a very large publisher, sure, you're going to build your own team, you're going to build your own technology, you're going to do it yourself. Um, but for many kind of more mid-sized publishers, it's it's harder and harder to do that. So we fill that gap and and kind of, you know, act as their exclusive representative. And we run the ad server for them. We run all the ad exchange and ad technology partnerships. We have a direct sales team that goes out and sells on behalf of our publishers. And, and really, you know, we have a very strong internal culture around like really focusing on helping our publishers make the most money from advertising. For many of them, it is for their family, it is their main source of income or for their business, it is their their main revenue stream. And so therefore, it's really critical for us to you know, make sure that they are making the most they can make. And then, to, and then to flip that around, that often also means that like making it so our publishers are great places for advertisers to spend their money. Obviously, advertisers only want to spend money in places that are effective, that can help them meet their goals. And so really trying to focus on making our publishers a great place to for, for, for advertisers to, to spend their, their knowledge. So that, that's a bit about us. As the chief strategy officer, I work in a bunch of different areas. I also run all of our revenue teams. I run our ad sales team and our ad tech partnerships teams and a lot of our yield optimization teams and things like that, as well as working. You know, we have a few people now that are focused on what I'll call like industry engagement and advocacy. So we are very active in the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, which is the industry body that kind of defines a lot of web standards. Uh, I'm on the board of the IB Tech Lab, um, which finds a lot of the advertising industry standards and, and practices. Patrick McCann, who's on our team, is the chairman, or, you know, the chairman of one of the main groups of Prebid, which is the main open source organization that makes software for publishers to make money from programmatic advertising. So we've really like spent a lot of time trying to be very involved in in the industry and really, you know, making sure that it 
continues. We really believe that you know advertising is important to democracy. It is important to fund great content. It is important as a way for advertisers to grow their businesses. And so we really believe in that and, and really are leaning into making sure that as the world changes, for many reasons that are mostly good, that it, it continues to be a really you know positive part of society. Hopefully, yeah. Lots. I think lots of uh, lots of threads we can pull on uh, just in that uh, statement. But how how did you personally end up in uh, the publisher side? Was it just by chance, or did that evolve over time? I'll try to tell a long story shortly. I started a newspaper for my the block I grew up on when I was nine. A friend of mine had a printer and I made up a newspaper and we distributed it to everybody on the block. I worked on a number of different kind of pre-web, but like digital magazines. When I was in high school, uh, in college, I worked on one of the college newspapers and I was one of the head people at the, the university TV station. Sort of random, not, not, you know, clearly it wasn't random. Like I've had a passion for bringing good information to people since I was a kid. And I really believe in it. And, and advertising is really one of the, obviously, one of the core revenue streams for a publisher. So I've been a believer in it for a long time. How, in this case, let's call it privacy reg regulation, right? Because it's bigger than GDPR. Obviously, a lot is being modeled after the GDPR. Uh, but how is privacy, privacy regulation influencing the world of digital marketing? Most of the people listening and most of the people from my network usually work on the client side of digital marketing. So they're mostly advertisers, right? And they are experiencing a, a decline in the, uh, the way their tools used to work, right? And, and you are basically on the other side of where those tools actually gather their audiences and, and, and show their impressions. So that's, I think, an interesting thing to explore. And advertising is the... Yeah, where those two worlds meet, it is under pressure. Uh, I think in your, in your opening statement, you said the importance of advertising. Deeper on that, why do you think advertising is important? If you believe that advertising is the primary revenue stream for most publishers, whether they are news or sports or lifestyle or technology or whatever they are, then you know if advertising is supporting the funding of that content, then that's critical for, you know, if you like to read a given technology, you know, site or whatever, like you want to make sure that, you know, they're earning money for the content they're creating for you. But then when you get into journalism, the, the, the statement can be unpacked. And certainly there are other revenue streams and some news organizations have done a good job diversifying. But for many, it's still the major source of revenue. And for pretty much everybody, it's still a significant source of revenue for sure. If you if you believe journalism is important to protecting democracy and well-run countries and and things like that that you know we all personally care about, I think advertising is important for that reason. And I think that's and that's been true for I don't know when the first newspaper ad was published, but I would bet you it was pretty close to the first newspaper being published. I think that this has been true for a long time and will be true for a long time in the future too. If I if I simplify it, it's it funds the ability to keep people in power honest, right? It's a, it's one of the business models that does that. Yeah, exactly. 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 And, and I think also like, you know, the, the, there, there's the grand point, which is kind of what you're saying, like the, the, the real, the real value there, but there, there is that, that small point too. Like, you know, for us as a good example, like we work with a lot of food publishers and, you know, is getting a great recipe critical to democracy? Like maybe not, but is getting a great recipe like critical to feeding your family and making your life a little bit easier and, you know, a, a core part for, for you, like, absolutely. I'm like, does that person deserve to make, you know, make a living from the content that they create that readers value? Like, I think that that's true also, even if it's a little bit less grand than the journalism side of things. That's the reason why advertising, right, has, has value. Uh, and obviously, you know, it has worked for a long time it's an exchange that people seem to agree with. But then the flip side of it, where you could argue a lot of this privacy regulation also sparked out of, is that we may have gotten 
a little bit overexcited with the way we <laughs> we we started to track people and uh, uh, and tag them. So and, and that sparked, of course, like it has turned advertising the tool that was used to protect democracy, like we just discussed, into a tool that could potentially be used to harm democracy because the data that is harvested can now be used by the NSA to, you know, wh whatever kind of a story we can spin up uh, on top of that. What are your thoughts on the, on that? Uh, that's a great counterpoint or, or you know, the, 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 the flip side of what's happened for sure is that it can certainly be, the content itself can be bad. Obviously, there's disinformation and other bad forms of content that I would say strongly should not be able to get funding. But there is the point that the technologies that we use, primarily digital advertising, you know, have gotten, have certainly have a lot of negative or potentially negative side effects that now finally are being taken into account and consideration and, and being changed for. And that really is the the mega trend of mega trends right now, I feel like in our industry is, is, is the move towards privacy and, and how that set of changes impacts everything. You were sort of saying that before, like it, it, it's, it's threaded through everything that we're, that we're touching and, and it's, it is the most important thing to, to understand deeply. I think. If we sum it up high level, we have the on web, we have, let's call it the death of cookies, right? Every browser basically. And then, and then in the, in the two main apps, uh, SDK, so on iOS and, and Android, well, iOS with uh, the app tracking transparency or, or transparency tracking framework has taken some really bold moves where uh, I think you, you, you've you also had some uh, some interesting points on Twitter uh, on that. and But also Google, which is obviously themselves uh, heavily reliant on advertising is also taken steps uh, on, or at least announced to take steps on the, on the Android platform. Any, any other trend we're missing here besides from obviously the, the, the legislative trend of privacy regulations? So I think, I mean, in what you're saying, it's sort of in there, but I think it is worth saying out loud that, and this is my belief, and I think we, have, we could have a very long conversation about this, that privacy as it has often been defined today, very much advantages very large companies. And, you know, very specifically in that case, Google and Apple, it's no coincidence that from Apple launching ITP in their browser and that ATT in, you know, the App Store world has coincided with a massive growth in Apple's advertising revenue. That is not a coincidence. That is completely 100% of a, a tied concept. I do really believe that there is a world we can create where privacy and competitive markets can be can work together and can be supportive of each other. But I think the world as it has been defined today has a little bit been too much bias towards the very large companies. But the, the definitions of privacy that are used in different cases are advantageous to them for a variety of reasons. And I think we, the collective, we have to figure out how to make it so. How do we get both? How do we get competitive markets and how do we get privacy at the same time? Well, so, so bef before we, we search for that nuance, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper on basically your point against Apple and Google in this case, right? So why is the way privacy is being implemented right now, let's call it, why is that benefiting the big players? You know, the metaphor or whatever that I like the most is in the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And I think that I think that that statement is very true here, because in a world where you, you talked about cookies before and first and third party cookies, and I feel like that nuance exists in the cookie world, but it exists in like the world of data in general. There is data that you as a company directly own, and even that's questionable to some level because really the user owns it. But let's say you as the company owns it, and that's your first party data, and that means that companies with the most first party data have the greatest advantage. And so for an app, I think, and I think Apple and Google, you have to look at separately because of their position in the market and the, what their business lines are. But for Apple, a company that historically has made almost all of its money from hardware, and now we're seeing, you know, I wouldn't say plateauing, clearly iPhone and iPad and Macs are selling quite well, and that's doing pretty well for them. But Apple's largest growth, the biggest growth part of the business is what they call services. And the biggest part of services is their advertising business. With something like ATT, 
you know, where they basically say that all these apps no longer can track across all the apps. Okay, that sounds like a good thing. But in that world, Apple has defined their first party as everything within their ecosystem. So they can know, I don't know every specific, but I don't even know what's to stop Apple from knowing that you listen to certain music on Spotify because Spotify is part is inside the app store. So they know you use Spotify and they can probably figure out what songs you're listening to. And then they could recommend like, well, you should use Apple Music and we'll give you a special deal. And, you know, don't you love your hard rock or whatever it is? Apple considers that to be their first party data. And so it's like Spotify has been limited in terms of what it can do, which it should be. And I think that's a good thing. But Apple has not been limited. And so it, the, the access that it has to data is so much greater. You know, I think with Apple, like that, the, the, the problem there, I think Google, and you sort of alluded to this before, is a little bit different because Google, like all these big companies, has multiple parts to their business. So when you look at Google and you think about their search business, which is the biggest part of their business, but one of the slower growing parts, none of this matters to search at all. Like if you search for luxury SUVs, like <laughs> that, there's your answer. Like that's exactly what, what Google's showing you in the search results. They don't need any other data about you at all. Like the value is entirely in the search term. YouTube, a little bit different. Mostly I think YouTube probably can survive on its own based on the enormous amounts of content that people consume on YouTube. They, they know a lot about you there. Google also, because you're logged into both Google.com and YouTube.com, most of the time can share data across those. So they know you search for luxury SUVs on Google.com. They can show you the, those SUV ads on YouTube.com, as well as just the contextual data from YouTube. So like, I think there's some value in third-party data to YouTube, but not tremendous, but some. I don't know what the number is. And then you've got Google's network ads business, which is you know what, what you know we as a company deal with. And what a lot of people think about, you know, in terms of Google running the ad server and running the ad exchanges and running the DSPs and these different platforms that help advertisers and publishers make money on the web and, and in the app ecosystem. And that part of the business like certainly is challenged by this move towards privacy. So I think Google's challenge is a little different because they're like, how do we protect search and YouTube from these changes and advantage them? But while not totally cratering this network ads business that we have that you know makes a bunch of money for them. So I think like they they they're trying to, which is obviously why they've been slower. They're trying to thread that needle of how do we how do we do both at the same time. I think if they were forced to shut everything down, they might lose money, but I think they would lose less than most because of search and YouTube. That it doesn't really matter to them. It's just it's one part of their business that's affected. So all of this is like, how do you like think through the mechanics of these different companies and what what they're challenges and situation as to, you know, in this new world that we're, that we're moving towards. Yeah. And I've, I think one of the interesting things for a company so huge as, as Google or Apple is that even based on their own products, their own first party data set that people willingly opt into in exchange for using their free service, right? Whether it's Google maps or Apple iCloud or whatever, that that data set is so gigantic and it will cover so much already that their ability to model and predict based simply on that is already nobody else can do that without without a data set of the of the same of volumes. Yep, exactly. It's hundred percent agreed with you. Like because and again because of privacy. So much is moving from deterministic solutions where we know who the, you know, some system knows who the person is. It can, can talk to them or measure them to these more modeled systems. Modeled systems work better with more data and the biggest companies have the most data and therefore they're, they're advantaged by that. The added problem with this modeling is that, for instance, Google Analytics re recently introduced uh, uh, conversion modeling for their newest version. And then... On one end, it's great because you, it feels like you're getting some data back. But once you start diving into it, it's black box. So you're not, you know, you, you can't be sure like how it's being modeled and, and how that's built up. So if it's about a small budget, that's sure, that's fine, right? But once once you start talking serious numbers, then that's that becomes problematic uh, at a certain point. One thing I, I saw a tweet about this over the weekend, and I'm just getting back from vacation like you, so I didn't fully process this, but 
somebody wrote, and, and this was somebody who manages Facebook ad campaigns for advertisers. And his general comment was that people who are spending thousands of dollars a day are doing okay. People who are spending hundreds of dollars a day are not doing okay. And I think a little bit that's the same point where it's like if you're if you're spending enough, if you're as a as an advertiser, if you can spend enough money to get enough data created, then Facebook and systems like Facebook can use that modeling to your advantage. But if you don't spend enough money, it's harder for the systems to work. They don't have the access to data that that they need. And again, and, you know, that's a tweet, so who knows exactly how true that is. Um, but it, but it, it brings true and it, it it feels very connected to a lot of the other points. I, w- I want to uh, circle back to the to the ATT part. So for the people who, who are not aware, like basically Apple set up some guidelines for apps that stipulated like Heda across uh, on the back end about users. You know, a lot of free apps, they're only the only reason they were free was basically because they were could you explain that from like ad tech point of view how that setup used to work on ios there is continues to be a an id system called idfa identity for id for advertisers and the way that worked was that your iphone would generate an idfa let's say you know rick says one two three four five and it would send that idfa in all apps that the user had. So when when the user requested a page or element within a given app, um, and there was communication back to the service, the app the app on your phone would send back that I am IDFA one two three four five, and it was the same across every app. To unfairly pick on Spotify and Candy Crush, Spotify's servers would know that Rick's iPhone was one IDFA one two three four five, and Zynga, which owns Candy Crush, would also know that. Rick's iPhone was one, two, three, four, five, and and now, you know, th- those companies or or partners they work with can share that information across those apps, and you could see ads in Candy Crush that were influenced by your Spotify listening history or the fact that you use Spotify or whatever it is, and and again, that's with two apps when you when you're using dozens of apps. There's a lot of data built up about you across them. And so to some level, IDFA, while different fun- functions quite similarly to, to cookies, um, in that it, it allowed that kind of cross. I, I think we talk about like um like cross-site tracking and things like that, but I think like the larger term is like cross-context tracking. It allowed systems that were across places that you wouldn't necessarily expect to know that you were the same person to to track you together. And Google has a similar system called Gate or Google. I forget what it stands for, but same idea that, that's on your, your Android phone. The Apple basically stated like, hey guys, this is our... And from that moment, you need this huge in-your-face banner, right? Where basically everybody, I think opt-out rate is probably going to be close to 100% uh, with, with those banners. And then if somebody opts out, you can't circumvent that by doing shady stuff and if we do catch you doing shady stuff your app does not get updated or even gets thrown out of the app store eventually right yes although and i'm not fully expert in the app stuff but i follow it pretty closely it sounds like apple has still been pretty lax about enforcing the rules about the shady stuff they do stop sending the idfa if you as a user opt out but there's a lot of other things that you know, more nefarious actors can do to track you in other ways, like your IP address and things like that. That sounds like it's still happening. And Apple has not really cracked in. A lot of people switch to fingerprinting, but I think in the in the latest update by Apple, which was like, you know, saying that you don't want people to do something, is that that path? Yeah, and and that's and this is an interesting place where Apple, where you start to see these privacy versus competition issues, where the pop-up within Candy Crush to ask the user if they're consent to being tracked is, is you know, can't be customized. It talks about tracking. It, there's no way for the, for, the, for the owner of the app to express what any, any of the advantages to the user could be. And people have developed a lot of pretty good systems to try to make that opt-in rate like better than zero to get at least some users opting in. But on the reverse side, Apple's own pop-ups for their own apps are talk about personalized advertising and personalized features and 
I kind of dislike the word because I feel like it's overused, but like have dark patterns in them where like the like allow Apple to track button, which doesn't say that at all. It says like, yeah, personalize my experience is like highlighted and like the, the, the don't track me is like hidden down the bottom. Like it's, it's like, it's textbook monopoly practices in my opinion. Like it's, it's so easy to see how, it, how they're advantaging themselves via the interface, via the words, via everything like that. Yeah. So, and, and I think that's uh, Seufert is his name, I guess. He, he's yeah, RX Credit. Yeah. MobileDevMemo.com is his website, I think. And he, yeah, he's really on top of all of this. Um, and yeah, there, there's a lot of examples where you're really scratching your head, like, okay, I get it that you want to clamp down on user privacy and you want to make your, your ecosystem, you know, the Apple ecosystem privacy friendly, like, go for it. But then, you should be, you know, you should have a level playing field while you, where you're also uh, respecting your own rules, uh, so to say. And that's uh, that's definitely not the case. So, that, yeah, I think I think on that part, people will keep highlighting it. And I suspect that eventually there will be some form of a lawsuit if if it's not already uh, being started somewhere where 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 uh, lawyers are going to try to you know get a get a verdict on this by judges, whether it's in the EU or in the US or probably both. The regulator that seems to be at the forefront of pretty much all of these things, in, in my opinion, at least, is the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA. And they came out with a big analysis. They've been working on a big analysis of like of the, the mobile app ecosystem and you know the gatekeepers, as, they, as they've been called, Google and Apple. And their most recent, I think the final kind of document came out a week or two ago and talks about these kind of self-preferencing issues and talks about different things that easy to pick on Apple here because they've done things that are so that are pretty blatant in my opinion. You know, another thing they've done is they for a long time really underinvested in their web browser, uh, Safari, and specifically Safari's underlying technology is called WebKit. And on iOS devices, all browsers are forced to use WebKit. So normally, Chrome and Firefox and whatever, they use different engines, they're called. Chrome uses Chromium and Firefox uses Gecko as the underlying systems. But on iOS, they're all forced to use WebKit. And Apple like purposefully underinvested in WebKit. So it had less capabilities and made it so the web was a worse platform for development than the App Store. And you know, no, no shock there, Apple makes a 30% you know, cut of every app that they sell um, and makes tons of money from the advertising and the app ecosystem. So of course, they're going to want to make the app ecosystem better than the web ecosystem. Now, it seems like they're finally trying to change that. I don't think they've caught up yet, but they're, they're trying to fix that. But years of underinvestment give them a very big head start. It's always hard for me to judge the WebKit developers. So for I follow John Willander, I think is like the, the lead developer. And I do, from what I can judge, like I don't know him personally, but from what I can judge, I think he truly cares about privacy and about the privacy features of WebKit. So I could see it that the WebKit team truly values privacy and tries to build for that. But on the other end, on like an Apple corporate scale, they definitely know how to make and optimize making money. <laughs> That's yeah, that's that's clear. I've been on many calls with John. He is very smart and really cares and very thoughtful and very reasonable. And and I've talked to a bunch of the other WebKit and Safari developers and they're all like the people are good people who really are trying and really are believe and and want to do the right thing. It's not about the people, really. It's about the company and, and the broader actions that it that it takes. There's some larger incentives. Taking this back to to your everyday business, how how do these changes, which are what you do, so you you know you help small to mid-sized publishers try to monetize what they do, you probably creating content in what kind of form, they're probably impacted by this, right? They certainly could be. To date, because of the way the web ecosystem works. What we've seen happen is that when Safari and Firefox made their changes to drop third-party cookies and other tracking technology over the last few years, those browsers, from a programmatic perspective, and to some level from a direct, direct advertising perspective too, became far less effective. On the web, if you can't track the users in any way, it's really hard to measure, it's really hard to target, you lose those benefits. But what we saw happen is that while 
revenue from those browsers and CPMs and other metrics like that went down significantly, the money mostly moved to Chrome. So the pie didn't really shrink. It just redistributed where the money was. So like that was annoying, but like not ca- catastrophic by any stretch. Whereas, you know, when Chrome, who is now, you know, in this kind of final process of removing third-party cookies and replacing them with these new technologies they call the privacy sandbox, with that happening probably next year sometime, that's a little bit of a different change because when that change happens, like there's nowhere, um, unless the collective we in this industry, like create new technologies and solutions, there's nowhere for the money to redistribute to. Like if you do nothing, advertisers will just spend less money because it'll be less effective. And that's bad for advertisers and bad for publishers. So what you're saying is we had a hypothetical publisher and they made a million, uh, a million bucks and that was spread across all browsers on web. And what you saw was you saw that advertising budget go move basically almost all to Chrome. To me, this is always puzzling because if there are actual people using those other browsers, uh, just as effective on the bottom line, right? It's just that you're not able to measure it. You're not able to measure the clicks and it's not able to stitch them together, right? To a user. What are, what are your thoughts on this? Because this this has always baffled me. Like, I get it. Like, business-wise, it doesn't make sense because there are still people using Safari and Firefox. It's still people who actually purchase stuff. Demographically, and you know, I'm sure you know this, like iPhone users are more affluent and spend more money than Android users. So like, of course you want to reach those users, but, and you hit the nail on the head with measurement, like that's that's the killer. And you do with marketers all the time. Like if you're spending a million bucks and you know that if I spend this way, I can measure exactly how the million bucks is being delivered and what the, what the, what the returns are and what my return on ad spend is and all those things that you really care about. Like, and, and if I spend a million bucks over here and I get none of that data, why would I spend a dollar there? When you think about it philosophically, like of course you want to advertise it to iPhone users, but in reality, if you can't measure that, it's really hard for you to do. And, and there's also all these like other sort of like misaligned incentives in the industry where buying platforms like DSPs are they're incented to spend your money. So, and if they're incented to spend your money, they're going to spend it in ways where they can justify that money, which is going to be tools that you can measure. I think if you went to a lot of marketers and said do you know you're not actually reaching any users on iPhones? They would probably be shocked by that fact. I don't think that they they really register to people because you don't see that unless you like dig into the reporting. You just see that I spent a million dollars and I made $2 million and I won. You don't know that you actually missed out on a bunch of people that you didn't even reach at all. This is really fascinating because I think it's, it's actually a huge business opportunity if you can... I think the issue is, is, is twofold. So one is... People want to have the feeling of control, right? So they want they want that measurement piece, and we have become <laughs> it's what I do. But then the interesting one as well. I was I was once at a at a Google conference, and there I got to talk with some big players on the double click side, and then I heard some numbers, and I heard how how the incentives work, and that really blew my mind. It immediately made some things clear about why certain things are the way they are. Could could you walk walk the listeners through like how uh, how the setup works with like you have the the DSP the SSP and how, how, what are the the parties in between like an ad being served and an ad being clicked and where and how the money flows? There's lots of nuances beyond this, but you, you sort of hit like the the core flow of how how money how money flows and how how things work. Advertisers typically use platforms called DSPs, demand-side platforms. And this is to buy ads on the web or in the app ecosystem or in YouTube or on Google search or you know, whatever. You know, Facebook has their own system. And they might not all be called DSPs, but there, there's some web interface you log into or app interface that you log into where you can say, I'm spending this much money. I want to reach these kind of users. I'm going to run from this date to this date. Here's what my ad creative looks like. You know, you, you, it, it's your system for setting up your and managing your ad campaign. So on the advertiser side, you've got DSPs. Publishers set up their, their sites so, and sort of like market their sites in systems called SSPs, supply side platforms. And those let you as a publisher 
package up your inventory and say, this is my sports section and this is my cooking section and this is my news section and, and, and break things down that way. They allow you to attach when as a publisher, you have user data, like that information can be, can be sent in through there. They allow you to, they do, you know, yield optimization to help you maximize the, the return on every impression. And then those SSPs also ultimately conduct the auction. So what happens, so if you've got publishers connect to SSPs, SSPs connect to DSPs and DSPs connect to advertisers, like that's your flow. And then when you think about like, okay, like how does the ad actually get delivered? A user goes to a website and let's for sake of simplicity, say this website has one ad on it, that the SSP sees that one ad and it creates, it, it sends out a signal to a bunch of DSPs and says, Hey, I've got an ad for sale. It's on this site. Here's the IP address of the user. Here's the page that it, the user's on. Here's some other information that I have. Hey, you DSPs, because advertisers work with many different DSPs. So the SSPs have to connect to dozens of DSPs. Who wants to bid? The DSPs go into their systems and say, okay, for this site, for this user, for this time of day, for this dot, 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 whatever, what ads do I have that are relevant? The DSP itself figures out that, okay, what's, what's my best bid and sends that to the SSP. The SSP receives now bids from all these different DSPs and it conducts an auction and says which one is usually the highest price wins, but there can be some reasons why sometimes you might, you might, you know, you want to might want to throw out the highest price for some reason or whatever. And it conducts that auction. And then based on the winner of that auction, the ad creative displays on, on that site. And that that's sort of the way it all flows through. And to your point of incentives, pretty much everybody's incented to get the dollar spent. Except really for the marketer. So the, the marketer's like, you know, kind of guarantee has to be, not has to be, but historically has been measurement. If I know my dollars are being spent in ways that I'm making more money, okay, I want to do that. But if I can't, if I don't know, or if I'm not making more money, I don't want to do that. So everybody is incented to make the system say that you are making more money. And that's, that's why measurement, I, I think, matters so much. That's also, I guess, why the, the switch from deterministic to probabilistic, although it can be very dangerous, <laughs> like, because usually the, the companies who are doing money from the advertiser. Yeah, 100%. I remember, I think it's already a, a couple of years ago now that I think it was Procter & Gamble. Yeah, I think we don't trust the transparency of this this chain that you just described and we think that you know there's there's first of all too much money that's being kept in each of those ad techs techs uh, in between and uh, and we highly doubt the the validity of of impressions and stuff like that and then they decided to do a big budget cut i don't i don't know if they if they came back from that do you uh, do you know that Procter & Gamble still spends a lot of money i'm not they, they might have said something like that. I know a bunch of other advertisers did say and measure similar things. I think it was Chase Bank was one. And this is a little bit of a different point, but one thing they were doing, I think they realized they were spending money on like, I forget the number, but it was like 120,000 websites. They were like, what the heck are you, what even are these websites? Like, where the heck am I? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And they cut their ad spend from, I'm making up the number, 100,000 websites to like 4,000 websites. And they lost no scale. They lost no, like the, everything measured just as well as it was before. And they were like, and now we can actually look at this list and be like, okay, I, I can actually wrap my, start wrapping my head around this list of websites. So I do think that it's really important for advertisers to be thoughtful about like how they're spending the money, where they're spending the money, understanding those incentives of other companies to spend their money for them. Um, and really be thoughtful about, you know, wh where are you spending your money and how is that being measured and who are you actually reaching? And like asking those hard questions, I think is really important. And just having this talk with you and, and, and discussing this, this issue of the budget moving all, all to Chrome when, you know, when the other browsers were not measuring anymore. One thing that on their bottom line when doing those incrementality tests, right? So just just try to only spend on Safari for a month and not spend on the other browsers for a month and, and don't try to measure the steps in between. Have faith in, in your funnel that it's still... I think that's actually a... If you, if you dare to go against the common wisdom of everything needs to be measured and you kind of go against the stream on that, you might actually be able to find some underpriced uh, ad inventory if you know if others are are running away from it. 
I, I t- totally agree with you on it. And I totally agree that incrementality is the way to look at this because it's funny. And this is a place where I think publishers and advertisers really have, we have shared interests and, and, and share the right ways to, to do things. I think the shared interest is, and I sort of said this at the beginning, like as a publisher, I want to make sure that the advertising on my sites is effective because if it's effective, then you as the advertiser want to spend more. So that's a win for both of us. And I think on the reverse side, like you talk about incrementality, we spend tons of time measuring incrementality from the publisher perspective because it's so easy to, if you're making a million bucks and you bring on a new ad tech partner and that ad tech partner makes you $50,000, you're like, ooh, that's $50,000. Like, that's good. That's more money. And it's like, but in reality, it's not true. Most of the time, that's just money redistributed from elsewhere. Maybe you're making a million and five thousand dollars now and set and and so like the incrementality is far lower than you would believe if you just look at like the the, the base numbers of, of where's my where my money is coming from so i think incrementality is so critical to measure for for advertisers and publishers on the publisher side is that what you would call yield optimization you would do that with incrementality yeah exactly the technology and tools are slightly different like we measure incrementality by we call it holdout we hold out ad tech partners some percent of the time. So we know when they're not there, here's how much less we make. And, and we, you know, it's a small percentage. You can, you can figure it out, but it, it becomes, once you've got the system set up relatively easy to know, this partner's making us a ton of incremental money and this partner's actually negative. When we run them, for some reason, we actually make less money than we would and we're going to shut them off immediately. So um, it's definitely the best way to, to look at things. Yeah, super interesting. Never thought about it from the publisher side of, of things. Do you also do those kind of tests across multiple publishers? So you, you test an, an ad tech vendor across multiple publishers and then per publisher? Because I could imagine like it could be that one ad tech partner really works well for this specific publisher or a niche or... Exactly. Yeah. We, de- we definitely do all those things. And you can, and you know, just like on the, the advertiser side, you can really get into the weeds and see like this partner, like actually doesn't do well between midnight and 5 a.m. Turn them off for those hours. Like there's all kinds of nuance about like the way the way it works and this the special solutions that each company has that you want to you want to measure all those different cuts to understand it. And I think again same is true for the advertiser side too. Let's call it pre-GDPR, pre-cookie banners and everybody was moving towards a Oh, the tool will fix everything for me world, right? So so we were in an implement, every implement for clients was was baffling. And and now because of both legal reasons, right? Because every script, uh, but also because of most of the scripts don't even work anymore because ITP, ATT, whatever is, is limiting them. Mentality testing, you can build a framework for it, but in the end, you're still going to have to figure it out a bit. You know, you have people working on it, trying to make sense of what's going on. Do you, do you think that's a fair statement? We definitely see similar things and we deal with similar things because, because of GDPR and other privacy regulations. Um, I, and you, you, you know, the, the legal point you brought up is interesting. Like there's a, 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 um, a study from some academic researchers that I thought was pretty interesting that showed and you probably saw this, that um, after GDPR, not only did the number of scripts and partners that that different companies had go down because now you've got legal risk, you've got legal review that's higher and things like that, and that's certainly true. Um, but the the companies that were the the partners that were most affected were smaller. I think that's probably true too because if you're if you're as a, as a publisher or an advertiser looking for who your partners are going to be, you're certainly going to partner with Google. You're certainly going to partner with Facebook. You're certainly going to partner with a few of these, like you know, maybe Adobe or some other like sets of giant companies. But some third party that's smaller that might have some really great innovative solution, you're probably going to say no to because you can't deal with the legal review, you can't deal with the legal risk, and like you know, is that you? The, the study didn't get into does this really reduce innovation, but it did certainly say that smaller companies are more negatively impacted because you know the users of the technology are just less likely to approve those things to run, which I think is its own interesting side effect here. Yeah, definitely. If you, if you have to run through the, the whole, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, I'm still on the fence on, on these things because on one end, 
I love the the way that we were just experimenting with. Oh yeah, there's a new tool. Let's let's throw it on. Let's see what it does. Right. I I love that that way of of doing things, and I learned a lot. But to be fair. There's probably a lot of tools that I've used in the past and that we tested on websites that may have been hacked without us knowing it on the back end or a leaked data or what, right? So there's a lot of carelessness in our enthusiasm, you know, might be the, the, the best. So, and I think that's where these these regulations come in um, and, and, and play a role. But it's the point of innovation is... Yeah, it's really valuable, right? Because innovation, you have to jump through X amount of hoops. It's a it's a, it's a hard problem. Like that's that's the killer. Is there isn't really a simple answer? Because I do think the other the other question that we haven't asked that again could be its own long conversation is it's a bit of an unfair question because I think to some level the answer is, is positive, but. Um, is users' privacy better now, four years into GDPR and several years into CCPA in California and years into other ones? Is users' privacy better now than it was or would have been without those things? And I think the answer is yes, but like, how much? And really where? And like, what is better? And like, and what has changed because of that? Like, there's also this point that like, no one's really focusing on, like, we all, I think, you know, we all raise our hand and say, more privacy is, is better. Like, I think we all agree with with that statement, but you know, do these regulations are they getting us to that place in the right way? And and I think those questions aren't aren't being asked or answered, and they're hard questions. They're not easy questions to answer. Um, and I and I don't I don't know I you know aside from like a simple yes, like I don't know how much like like I don't I think on the flip side, no one would say like the GDPR is a you know, the best regulation in the history of regulations, people are like, it's complicated, it's confusing, it doesn't make sense, cookie banners are terrible, like, it all had all these unintended consequences, like, I think people would say those things too. So it's like, are there better ways to get to the point we want to get to? And, and again, it's a really hard conversation, but I think those are important things to, to dig through. For me, the more I talk to people from from all sides of the spectrum, uh, the more I've, I think it's about, because it's so big and how we... Uh, you know how we would proceed as a, as a world, so it's it's one of the most important things we have. That's why it it can it can't be figured out and then released. Like it's not like going to be a version one. It's going to the GDPR is like a counter move from for all those years of uh, you know everybody just freewheeling on the internet and just inventing and throwing stuff out there. And now you know it's it's a pendulum swinging. Um, and now it's probably overcorrecting perhaps a bit. Like I think it's, it's definitely limiting innovation compared to how fast innovation in, in those kind of spaces went before, but it is, it is making people think about building tools with a privacy by design mindset, right? Because if, if I would fund a startup now and that startup had, did not have like a, a way to build their data infrastructure in a way that isolates data sets in, a, you know, the, basically to make them not liable to huge lawsuits. And so that's, that's probably happening already. Cause you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not an investor and I'm definitely, you know, not at the, at the front of all that, but those people are probably way smarter and have been thinking about this. So that's, that's likely an, an outcome. So it will take a couple of years for us to see that uh, in, in the marketplace, of course. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I also think, um, I haven't fully read through it, but the proposed U.S. federal privacy legislation that got released a few weeks ago um, has a few interesting things in it that I think, and I, I, you know, I'm not making a comment on the, the broader legislation in general, but, but I like the point that it thinks about some kinds of data as more needing to be more private and more secure than other forms of data. And, you know, I think, you know, when you're talking about location data or healthcare data or financial data and things like that, like that, that is, that is more important and can be misused in far worse ways. Um, whereas, you know, the, you know, silly example I used before, like if you're in the market for a luxury, luxury SUV, like 
you might actually want companies to know about that because like you don't actually know what all your choices are and you want to get what the right ads are and like it, it doesn't matter as much like it's it, that that information is not as important as like you know the fact that you have diabetes or you know you know you were in this location at this time and things like that that are that are really should be very private and very secure yeah i, f- I think the main thought on the like the gdpr has these special classifications of data right that that about health and, and and those kind of topics but i think the gdpr takes this point of view of it's better to prevent it from happening right so it's be- better to yeah i think the issue with all those data sets once they are able to link them then suddenly the picture becomes really detailed about a person and th- and i think that's the main uh the, at, at this from um uh, from your point of view in in your daily business so you're you know, you help publishers with ad tech, right? So you are in that that picture that we that we just sketched out with the with the DSPs and the SSPs, and you are also dealing with making sure that you know those ads are as relevant as possible. So what what are what are the steps you are taking, like from a privacy perspective, on the technology side? I think for us, you know, step one with privacy is we talk about the sword and the shield. Is sort of our conceptual framework. Um, and so the first part is the shield. How do you make sure that the way you operate is adhering to privacy regulations and privacy expectations and things like that? Like, how do you just do the defensive things to make sure you're not breaking any rules or you're not doing things in, in a way that users you know, wouldn't understand or whatever? So I think, so part one is, is the shield. Like, how do, you, how do you just defensive around this? And I think, and then the second part is the sword. How can you use changes in the world around privacy to your advantage from a from a business perspective? And and you know again within you know with the, with the shield always being first. You know you've got to you've got to do do things the right way. But you know to your point about innovation, like if companies are innovating around creating new technologies that are really privacy respecting, those companies, you know, and it will take time, but those companies will win in theory over time. Um, I think the same is true for a company like ours, where it's like, how do we stay ahead of those privacy things and do forward-thinking things? And it's one of the reasons, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, we're active in the W3C and in Prebit and the IB and these other trade bodies, because we want to be part of helping define what the standards are going to be, because that one makes sure that we can defend the way our publisher, you know, the way our publishers make money and the way our part of the world works. Um, but um, you know, but second, by being at the front of the line, we know more about those technologies than other people. We understand how to use them better. We we're the first in line to, to implement them and, and things like that. Um, and that's I think where that the sword comes in comes into play is like really being, you know, f- front of the line and and um, and knowing what's happening better than most. Um, so for us, like that's that's kind of how we we think about it. Like in practice, since two thousand eighteen, you. Have you had to redesign like how, how basically how your systems work or is it alterations or how, like how does this look in from a technical point of view? You've got like the cookie banner part of the world, which they're like, we basically just follow, you know, you know, in the advertising industry, the, the IB defines the standards about how websites and apps and things collect data and collect consent and distribute the consent information and whatever. And we just, we follow those practices and as, and as those practices have evolved and been updated, we just continue to, again, like stay at the front and keep making sure we're doing things the right way. Um, so that's what we what we do on that side. I think internally, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about and continue to think about, you know, when, you know, and you being based in Europe, probably know this even more, think about this more than we do, but like it permeates a little bit of like everything you do, where even now our database team has to think about like, oh, we're like, we're moving data from here to here. And if that data has no PII, it has no user data, like do it, you know, do whatever you need to do. But if that data does have PII or user, user data in it, aha, now we've got to document this better. Now we got to keep track of this. Now we got to understand what these processes are, who has access to these controls. Like there's a, there's a different and more structured process that you go through to make sure that you're, you're, keeping track of those things and, and using them the right way. Um, and so it has like, you know, it, 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 it permeates 
your organization and the way you think about things and the way you do things because you have to be more cautious and careful and thoughtful about about what you're doing there to you know to stay on the right side of, of the regulations. One thing that I, I'm always curious about, I have a couple of uh, publisher clients as well, so then I. I get to work with those with those ad scripts. In a lot of cases, it's it's, it's Google's uh, DFP. Um, what always puzzles me is the um, the the way of of loading, right? Because let's let's assume it's a European website, right? So strict GDPR implementation, GDPR cookie cookie banner. So I arrive on a website first time, first visit. So I am unknown. I get the I get the cookie banner pop up. At that moment, should the, is the DFP loaded or not? Before I click the pop up, right? So I have not interacted with it. Um, those are good questions. I remember being parts of these conversations. I cannot remember. I can't remember what we do and and what we recommend others do. Um, I do think that. To make a dumb statement, like GDPR doesn't mean you can't call other partners. It just means you need to call them appropriately and then instruct them what they can do with any data that they get themselves. So in your case, if you're calling DFP or GAM as it's called now, before you have consent, that isn't necessarily wrong as long as you are telling Google, I don't have consent yet for you and therefore you can't, you can't, can't process this in certain ways and you can't use this in certain ways. Um, so I think, I think to some level it's, it's less about, it's less about the, it's partially about the order, but also partially about how you're communicating consent or lack of consent, um, at those times. Exactly. Cause I remembered that, that, um, D DFP or, or, or them, like you said, has, um, had the option of showing non-personalized banners. So, you know, basically the the lowest yielding stuff you can get, I, I guess, right? Uh, uh, and and I, I think that's topic of the website. Um, and, then, and then after consent, we could update the signal and then, you know, Google could go all out with all the, all the interesting stuff they knew about the user and, and everything else we sent to them. To me, it's still, yeah, it seems like such a, because once you, once you go into that, you opting out becomes really hard, right? Because you, once you start to share, um, you have an, of you, under the GDPR, you have to give the opt out option. But to me, that always feels like, okay, I can't verify that that information that you just shared before, that that will actually be removed because once you send it to the, you're going to send it to one DFP, but it's going to spread it out across the gazillion of ad networks that are, <laughs> that are integrated in that. Right. And you, if you open the network tab, you see them all, you see them all load if you're, if you're lucky. And to me, that concept, it feels like that is broken, like going forward. Do you know about um, GPC, global privacy, privacy control? that's the huge opt-in opt-out list that you can get in the IAB. Uh... No, that, that's the GVL. That's the global vendor list. G GPC is a, um, whatever you call it, a standard, but it's like a little industry group that popped up in the US at first to deal with CCPA. But, but what it is, is it, it's a signal that you as a user can like flag on yourself. It's not about a website. It's about you. And so the, the easy way to think about GPC is it's a um, it's a browser plugin that you can put on Chrome or any browser. Um, it's like the, it, like the do not track signal. It's like the do not track signal, but it's but it, it in theory will work better than the do not track signal because for, for a number of reasons that people who are smarter than I about privacy have thought about a lot. Because what it does is when you turn on GPC for yourself. You, as the user in that browser only, are always kind of emanating the fact that you are GPC enabled. And what that means is that even if a thousand companies or 10,000 companies, whatever, have your data, if that GPC signal is attached to it, that company has to abide by that signal. And if they don't, they are liable for that. And so it, it, it removes the onus from the user and the site on that page 
for, for, for Team Dragon stuff. And, and, it, and it kind of addresses your problem where like data that previously about me, I did consent to, but now I've removed consent for that old data still floating around. GPC-like, because it's about you, like that old data, in theory, as, long as, it, as long as it's attached to you, which is where the problem comes from anyway, and you're GPC enabled, then those companies need to know that they can't use that data in the wrong way. And, and, and GPC is great because it's so simple. Um, it doesn't quite fit with GDPR because GDPR is more complex consent requirements and things than CCPA does. Um, but there may be a way to make it work because it, it, it is about, it, it, it's really funny. It, in order to prevent tracking. You have to trick. <laughs> you actually need to track the user. Um, which is kind of this funny thing. But if you can't track the user, you actually lose consent and you lose those capabilities. And so it's this very weird catch-22. And, and GPC is like a pretty elegant way to try to get around some of those problems. Every time I try to do these mental be solved easily without uh, giving up a lot of data, you, you always end up with the fact like, yeah, if you want a signal to delete it, then by by definition, you have to tell them who you are because otherwise they can't delete it, right? And that's like a... It's a, it's hard, right? We had this we had this funny conversation about um, deletion requests and and um, access to information requests and whatever that you know different names under GDPR and CCPA and other regulations. And if somebody requests that their data that they that they don't want to be tracked and that they want their data deleted, we can do all of those things for them. But the we actually have to keep the fact that they sent in a, a DSR. Like we can't delete that data because if we delete that data, then we might accidentally recapture their data later. And so it's this very weird. And some of those things were 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 you know forethought and people had figured those out. But it, it it puts you in these funny situations where you're like, how do we do this the right way without like without breaking the law, but also like meeting the user expectation correctly, which aren't exactly in sync. Yeah, my, the first episode of the podcast, I talked to uh, to Aurelie Pauls, who is a DPO for for M Particle, among uh, among other things. And yeah, she she really has a a great understanding of the this legal framework and how how complex the role of the DPO is in order to do the thing that you just described. I think currently the only though, right? So you have the technical part and then you have the legal stuff to cover that. But I I personally I would love to be able to do it just with technology and make the legal part obsolete right if we if we can figure out some way to to get it to a construction where you could say like hey we we had your data but we deleted the keys and then we deleted the data set and you can verify that here that would be the perfect solution right if we could figure something out where where it's actually impossible to change it after the fact but um Maybe maybe that's the real use case of uh, of crypt, crypto uh, after all, <laughs> or or maybe not. But I agree that that's an important question to answer. For you, if you are thinking about both the future, you know, uh, personally uh, for your company, like what are the what are the things that you're really worried about or excited about? What do you see for the next couple of months in the in in the space that you're watching? We focus on the web primarily. And because of the, the Chrome changes coming, I think like that is the, you know, the overriding focus for the next batch of time. Um, we're doing a lot of work, beta testing a lot of these solutions. We're in the origin trials of Chrome's privacy sandbox and testing those things out. And it really is about getting ready for those things, you know, with, with the caveat to everything that it's always hard to, you know, if we're going to deploy engineering resources as an easy, you know, case, it's always easier to deploy them against things that we can do that will make us a dollar more tomorrow. These things are things that like might make us a dollar more a year and a half from now. And so sometimes they're hard to prioritize. So, you know, but, but like we're figuring out the right, right balance. We're, we're actually in the process of hiring a dedicated team to work on these future oriented things because when they're prioritized against tomorrow's problems, tomorrow's problems usually win. Um, and you know, when, when they're, you know, next year's problems can be punched out of our a little bit. Um, so, you know, it really is about prioritizing these new technologies, th these new solutions, um, of which, you know, we talked about the Chrome privacy sandbox a little bit, but you know, there's dozens of other technologies and solutions being tested and tried and some are quite good and some are 
not very good and some will last some some i think will stand the test of time and others i think might be dead in two years for other reasons um so i think it is about trying these things out and and the the other you know metaphor we've been using a lot is and this was you know, kind of a paraphrase of something a major advertiser said to me which i liked a lot she said you know there's no silver bullet this they to these problems it's a patchwork quilt of solutions and i think that's the truth i think in the old world we you know third-party cookies and IDFAs sort of like made everything work. And now with those things gone or, or dying, um, it is about this new patchwork quilt of, of solutions because there, there won't be a one-size-fits-all answer anymore. And, and, and the benefit is, I think for most marketers and most publishers, you don't need to worry about all of them. There's too many. They're too complicated. They're very technical. You don't need to know the details, but you need to make sure that your technology partners are really thinking about those things and are really ahead of those things and are, are picking good solutions. I do think the... The danger of thinking there's a silver bullet is bad. Like you, you need to be investing in multiple directions. And again, as a, I think as a marketer, it's critical to be pushing your partners in in many directions. If if you're if the company you work with most is focused on a single solution, like that, almost definitely is not the answer. Silver bullet solutionism uh, is always dangerous in technology. Exactly. And I've, yeah, I think I think for for marketers on the client side, I think what I notice. Advertise, on the advertising side, they're getting pushed a lot by Google and Facebook to spend more pushed. But ever since the ability to measure dropped, it has become worse and the pressure is on. And also the rate to regain what was lost in measurement, they're both trying to pull it towards them. Um, so finding a you and advise you on that is probably uh, worth it as at least to get some intel totally agree i totally i think that's i think it's hugely important to find trusted partners and and there aren't that many out there but they exist great uh paul thanks a lot for talking with me i learned a lot maybe uh maybe in the future after uh, after google releases their uh, their chrome up of publishing uh looks uh, looks from your end yeah sounds good thanks for having me it was a great uh, great conversation on Twitter, for sure. I'm not sure if you're also active on other uh, other platforms. Follow me on Twitter, pbanist, P-B-A-N-N-I-S-T is my Twitter handle. Feel free to connect on LinkedIn. I don't use LinkedIn as much, but happy to connect with people and um, happy to um, talk and answer questions. And, uh, you know, always want to talk to people who care about content and advertising. And I think it's critical and, and always like to talk to like-minded people. Yeah, I can highly recommend uh, your Twitter feed. Learned a lot from it uh, over the last couple of months. Thanks for being on and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you.